Hey guys, welcome to episode 54 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we begin, we just want to thank you again, as always, for all of the likes on social media. It was recently just our two-year podcast anniversary, so that was pretty exciting. Oh, absolutely. It's like amazing actually i know i can't believe we've been doing this for two years it's it doesn't feel like two years no it kind of feels more like i don't know i feel like a couple of months i don't know it's i weird. know time but I think flies yeah i think it's just because like we both enjoy it so much yeah that it just i don't know it just goes you know time flies i know and it's been so great these past two years like getting to know our listeners and meeting new friends and it's just been a really wonderful experience it really has and so a lot of you, a lot of you guys enjoy it, so we love bringing it to you. I know, and we just want to thank you all for being great listeners because we like took a, ro- a ride down memory lane and listened to some of our past episodes, and the audio is pretty rough. So I appreciate you guys sticking on with us. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, there was a lot of learning curves, but I'm glad that we're getting to a point where listening to us is tolerable and enjoyable it doesn't make your ears yeah, bleed. Your ears yeah bleed. so that's good <laughs> yeah um really quickly before we begin i i just want to let everybody know i'm sorry if i sound a little weird i'm, I'm actually kind of sick right now so um sorry if i sound like crap <laughs> hey, you sound okay it's when i'm sick you hear it yeah because i'm so nasally but you're pretty good i try it's the deep voice it's, it must the radio be. voice yeah especially when i'm sick my voice gets a little deeper it's not on purpose it's just what happens. Just, yeah, like it affects my vocal cords or something. I don't know. Well, we just want to thank you guys for, of course, giving us love for our two-year anniversary and also leaving any reviews that you left on any of the podcast listening platforms and sticking with us. Again, it always really helps if you tell your friends about us because that's the biggest way that podcasts spread is by word of mouth. So we would appreciate you letting people know that you like us and that would help us grow a little bit more. Also, if you want, you could donate to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash true crime couple. And we have a another episode, our first episode in July coming out for our Patreons. There's also some shout outs and special requests that we got from patreons that'll come at the end of this episode so stick around for that are you ready to get started let's do it so the case we're bringing you today is an interesting one a girl is found on the verge of death on the outskirts of the florida everglades in 2005 and when the 21 year old ukrainian girl was taken to the hospital doctors found that she had been savagely attacked and raped the overworked Miami-Dade investigators were left with more questions than answers when they tried piecing together the series of events that happened. The girl's account of that night was shaky at best, and all leads went cold. Unsatisfied with the investigation, the girl and the lawyer she asked for upon waking up at the hospital chose to sue the hotel for negligence. But when the hotel investigators went back to look at the tapes of that night, The victim was never seen leaving her room. So just how did she end up fighting for her life in the Florida Everglades? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. 
are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. During a cold February morning for South Florida in 2005, a local power company worker was checking on an empty lot of a cul-de-sac community that was under construction. Behind the cul-de-sac was the high grass and black mud of the Everglades. And in the back of one of those lots, the worker saw a body. As he got closer, he saw a girl with blonde curly hair laying face down, naked in the grass. Her body was beaten, bruised, and bloody. Blood soaked her blonde curls. The worker ran to the girl and called 911. When they asked if the girl was breathing, he reached down to touch her. She was. Her breaths were shallow, but they were there. The girl was still unconscious when she was airlifted to Jackson Memorial Hospital. She woke as she was being brought into the trauma center. She told those around her that she remembered very little of what happened. She was from the Ukraine, so the English she spoke was broken, and her head injuries made the story even harder to tell. However, it was her body that told her story, to the doctors and investigators. She had suffered severe head trauma, brain-rattling blows, as the doctor's report states. The bones around her right eye had been shattered. She had also been savagely raped. Semen had been recovered from within her. The girl was confused and terrified. She eventually stopped recounting her story and just kept asking for her lawyer. This request was very unusual for detectives, but they did as she asked and called the girl's lawyer. They learned that the lawyer she requested was an injury lawyer who had helped her a month before. Apparently, she'd been working for a cruise ship line when she cut her finger really badly. The cruise line had been found at fault for the injury, so they had paid for the girl's medical bills and for her stay at the airport Regency Hotel while she recovered. And this is where she had been living when the attack happened. She had actually been found eight miles away from the hotel. So I think that this kind of like clears up why the girl was at the hotel, because she was recovering from this injury that she got on her job site. Right. And I I don't think it's as weird as, like, when I first read the story, I'm like, okay, there's a rape victim who's requesting a lawyer. Like, it sounded weird to me at first, but knowing that English is her second language, I kind of understand a little bit more why she's requesting. It's kind of like an advocate she's asking yeah, she, for. Yeah, she wants representation. Obviously, she doesn't... English isn't her first language, so it makes sense. Right, and this lawyer seemed to have helped her in the past, so I think she's just looking for someone that has helped her before. Right. So that kind of makes sense. It clears up a little bit of what was going on. When she was settled and had talked to her lawyer, the girl finally told investigators all that she knew. She said that the assault had begun in her room, which was on the fourth floor. She said her attackers were two to three white men who spoke with what she described as a Hispanic accent. She followed that up by quickly saying she couldn't be certain, though. She said one of the men pushed a pillow into her face, and at one point she had been forced to drink alcohol. After that, she said her memories were in fragments, like they were a part of a bad dream. 
She remembers being held or carried, being thrown over a man's shoulder as he moved down a flight of stairs. She then remembers that she was raped in the backseat of a car while pleading for her life. What she remembered was horrific and traumatizing, but none of it could help investigators tie down who had brutally raped this poor girl. Unfortunately, the case went cold, pretty quickly, especially in Miami-Dade County. From 2005 to 2010, forcible sexual assault had risen in the county by 24%, and the sex crimes unit was drowning. That is an unbelievable growth in sexual assault cases. Yeah, that is, and and it's kind of it's kind of bizarre. Like, I mean, I don't know what would spark such an increase. Well, you have a really busy area, so like Miami, which is kind of a hot spot for people to go, and especially young people to go and vacation and drink. It's like a party scene, so that makes sense. Um, something that could account for different spikes like that are um, like. I guess you could say like changing of the guard or different people who are in control in certain counties and some people allow the reporting of crimes versus try to like hide it a little bit because it can't be good for Miami to say, hey, come visit us. Our sex crimes are up 24%. You know what I mean? <laughs> so they yeah. kind of try to keep it a secret, but someone may have been in power that was like, no, we have to realistically say what's happening so we can seek more funding from the state or from the country to help our sex crimes unit actually close some of these cases. So it could have been a whole bunch of things like coming together. I see what you're saying. Yeah, they also have a lot of weird rules. Not rules. That's a stupid way to say it. I guess just there's certain laws, like especially like on the beach, like on the beach community areas. Uh Uh-huh. Like... I know it sounds dumb, but like, for example, I believe you can be topless, male or female or whatever, in that area. So like, in I Miami? feel like in Miami, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I just want to say, if I am correct, then that would entice sickos out there if women are able to walk around topless. Just saying, it's you know. Well, I think not that, that I think, that I think a correlation. more than that. Well, there's definitely. A number of, because I Googled it, There's there are five places that you can legally be topless in the United States, and Miami is one of them. Um, there's South Beach area, especially, at topless and nude beaches in Miami. Yep, it is definitely a thing. But, I mean, that doesn't mean... I know what you're saying. No, I know. It definitely doesn't, definitely doesn't correlate. But it's also... I think it's just the appeal of what Miami is. It's a selling of the scene. Oh, definitely. Like people are people are drinking, people are partying, and and sometimes that unfortunately leads to lowering of inhibitions and people committing crimes that they may not have committed if they weren't crazy intoxicated. But it's definitely a busy, busy sex crimes unit in Miami Dade County. Really quickly, that was a very, very fast Google search there. I am the Google Queen. <laughs> While we're recording. That was yes. good. <laughs> <laughs> and that was in real time. That, that wasn't was even edited. Time. Yeah. Yeah. But I was right though. Yes, you were. I mean I don't often like saying yes, you're right, but I will tell Once you again, yes. John, I am the king of useless facts. I'm I'm kinda questioning why you know that fact, actually. 
Um, movies. Oh, okay. No, seriously, movies, <laughs> TV shows, because they always portray that in movies and TV shows. Okay. Anyway. I guess you're right. So there were no suspects, and the ID from the victim was very general and inconsistent at best. The semen was tested, and there was no match in the system for the DNA. The girl's room was searched for evidence, but there did not appear to have been a struggle inside of her room. Hotel employees were interviewed, and the 174 rooms of the hotel were combed for evidence or men matching the description given by the victim. Now, this was not your typical victim. She did not want to accept that no one would pay for her brutalization. The lawyer that she called to be by her side, of course, advised her to file a lawsuit against the hotel, alleging negligence. So, the reason why they're going to sue the hotel, and I know this seems like kind of like a, a far stretch, like claiming negligence, but the hotel investigators and the lawyers are going to review the tapes because there's a lot of CCTV cameras in the hotel and she's not seen leaving her hotel room. So it's kind of weird. It's a mystery as to how she wound up eight miles outside of the hotel when the cameras never caught her leaving. So that's a huge mystery here. And she has no memory, so she clearly can't tell anybody. But they're claiming negligence because if this is what took place, that means the attack happened in the hotel. And the only people that would know how to keep out of camera sight would be a hotel employee. So what the victim and the lawyer are claiming is that the perpetrator is a hotel employee and the hotel is negligent because they didn't do a background check on violent offenders. Okay. I mean, I can I can see how that could turn into a lawsuit. Like, it would give cause Correct. for a lawsuit. So but that, I mean, yeah, to, that's the backing behind the lawsuit. Yeah, I get it. But to actually to think it was a hotel employee, I mean, if I mean, I could think the background checks, maybe if a CCTV camera didn't work, that's kind of on the hotel. But to say that it's a, a could be, or is a hotel employee is kind of a stretch because, I mean, anybody with ha- with a half a brain can go into a hotel or anywhere for that matter, know where the cameras are and where they're angled. Right. I mean, that's kind of stupid. But I could see the other two things being a cause for you know, suing a hotel. Right. And some people think also that, you know, the hotel has deep pockets. So, of course, some people are going to think maybe she's suing just to get money, especially because she had that lawsuit against the cruise ship that she had just won. Yeah. So, I mean, things weren't looking great for her in that aspect. But whether the intent was to go after the deep corporate pockets of the hotel or, here's a second option, gain attention to the case and the hunt for her attackers. Because if you're suing a hotel, not only now are investigators going to be looking into who did this, but the hotel itself is going to be hiring investigators to look into it. Well, it also brings bad light and bad publicity to a hotel. Where Correct. You're trying so to they want to solve this. Yeah. However, this was definitely not the direction a sexual assault case usually takes. So investigators became suspicious and confused. There were rumors of a sophisticated con. Now, I know calling this potential con seems harsh, but the investigators were super puzzled. Was this something? Was this a woman who was who had staged this? Because she wasn't on the cameras. 
And she just ended up eight miles away and now potentially suing a hotel to make a lot of money. So the first thing they turned to while looking for the men that committed this crime were the feeds from the CCTV footage, like we mentioned before. However, this is what made things more confusing. The victim was never seen leaving her room, being taken from her room, or carried down any of the stairs that the hotel had. Remember, she remembers being put over someone's shoulders and carried down a flight of stairs. But there's cameras in the staircases, and it was never captured. So what happened that night? How did this girl get brutalized and left for dead eight miles away from the hotel that she never left, voluntarily or not? I mean, it is kind of hard to say that this could be a con only because she was on the verge of death. And if that guy didn't discover her, she most likely would have died. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think someone can stage a brutal beatdown like that. And, and I mean, she was raped. She was beaten to close to death and then disposed of. I don't think someone can stage that. No, I agree with you. Well, now this case was headed to civil court and the hotel chain turned to their lawyers to help defend them against the lawsuit. The law firm knew that the quickest way that they would be able to avoid this lawsuit would be to figure out who committed the crime and ensure that it was not at the fault of the hotel. The firm chose to hire a private investigator that they worked with before. His name was Ken Brennan. He was a former detective and federal agent from Long Island, New York, who had come to Florida in the mid-90s to work as a commodities trader and private investor. Brennan was a talkative guy, and he made sure that the law firm knew, just as he had told them before, that he was in the business of finding out the truth, and that if what he found out did not benefit the client, that he would still release the information to the court. But Brennan admittedly was excited to take on the case. He wanted to know what happened to this victim and whether or not she was being used as a pawn for some kind of Eastern European syndicate. Because that's a factor that this private investigator is going to kind of bring up is that maybe this is a con and this woman's just not in on it. You know what I mean? They're going to extort the money from her once she receives the money from the hotel. Like she could just be like a human trafficking victim and she's being used as like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, a way to make a quick buck. Correct. But then I think that's drawing attention to a criminal syndicate, which criminal syndicates like not having attention. It's just people always like these elaborate, crazy stories when it has anything to do with like Eastern European people i don't know do you, yeah, do you agree with me yeah i don't know everybody everybody treats it like once we once somebody oh, knows it's the mob yeah but like even more so with like eastern european like they think right away that it's like hans gruber from uh taken no Is hans that taken? gruber that's um oh my gosh oh no you're talking die about hard. die hard it's okay. like this crazy plan it's just like it's it's most likely not I'm it's not, not, not just, a 19 yeah, 80s not Russian. to say it didn't happen no, I know. Or that it like, couldn't happen. There's there's but, no Russian bad guy behind this. There's yeah, just a victim saying. who got brutalized and is looking for answers. I think so. I and then I think during the turmoil, she's probably thinking, well, I could possibly get money out of because of my ordeal. Well, I mean, you'd want something to come out of that because this girl is going to have insane medical bills. that, And she's clearly not covered by insurance. 
So she's going to need money. And that's scary to think of to, to be new in a country, to be young, to not have family with you and now have these crazy medical bills that you're going to have to cover is scary. So I see what the lawyer was trying to do to help her. Yeah, no, I see the, the I definitely see the reason behind it. You know, it's, it's normal. It's normal to try to, you know, help yourself. Correct. So understanding the terms that Brennan laid out for them, the firm still intended to use him for their investigation. Now, Alan Foote, who is the lead detective in the case, was not happy to hear that a private investigator would be interfering in an already complicated and cold case. However, when Brennan met with Foote, he made sure that there was a professional courtesy present. Brennan, as brass as he is tan, told Foote as bluntly as he could, Look, you and I both know there's no way that you can investigate this case. I can see this through to the end and I won't step on your dick. I won't do a thing without telling you about it. If I figure out who did it, you get the arrest. I won't do anything to fuck it up for you. So that was pretty nice. I mean, that's the best case scenario. I would assume if you're a detective and a private investigator, it's kind of like coming up on your territory. And the two had a sense of brotherhood immediately. Foote knew that it was true. There was no way that he had time or the resources that Brennan did. And if the guy was going to be keeping him in the loop, he was doing him a favor. So Brennan got the go-ahead and the good luck from the Miami-Dade police. So he kind of like did everything right, this Brennan guy. He's saying, listen, I could find out something that hurts you. I'm still going to tell the court. And he's also working with the police. So he's being really direct here. Yeah, I mean, I can. you can tell he's respected. And that's and that probably has to do with his background, you know, before. as a federal agent and police officer. Exactly. So yeah, I could, you know, that's always good. That's what you probably want. Like if you're in that position where you have to deal with a private investigator working for someone, I'm sure that that's the type of relationship you want to have. Mm-hmm. So things just go very smooth. And like he said, he's not going to step on his uh, quote unquote dick. But yeah, that was, that was very aggressive. That was also hard for me to, to say. Yeah, like that was very aggressive. Why I can't said, you just be like, oh, you said, you know, I, I won't step, step on, on your, your toes. shoes or toes, whatever. But like your dick. Yeah. <laughs> that guy wow. came off strong. He did come off but really anyway. strong. There, he said a lot of other like bad words, but I kind of like grazed over them. That's good. But I'm like, I can't get around the, the dick thing. It's just it's got to come out. Well, I think it's like necessary. That's what he said. Yeah. It's definitely necessary for us to say it. Because, I think it shows his personality. Yeah, it too. shows his personality for sure. So Brennan first observed that the hotel security system was very secure. There was a fence around the entire property. The back gate of the property was locked and monitored. There were only a few points of entry and exits from the actual hotel itself. And each exit was also equipped with a surveillance camera as well as one by the front main entrance. There was also one over the back entrance and one in the lobby. There was also one in the lobby elevator and the others out by the pool and the parking lot. There were two security guards on duty at all times. So we're talking about a pretty decently secured hotel. More than I've ever seen, actually. I don't think I noticed cameras, but I would notice security guards and... 
Maybe well, once or twice I've noticed. I mean, I've I've, I've definitely seen cameras at, at hotels that, like, let's say for example, we stayed at, but I've never seen security at at our hotels that we've stayed yeah. at. But hey, or maybe they're like just really good at being yeah, maybe. Like, undercover. Yeah. <laughs> so in addition to all of that, the hotel guests have a digital key card that left a computer record every time they unlocked the door to their rooms. It was possible to track each time a room was entered, as all the rooms automatically locked. All right, let's take a break from the show to hear from our first sponsor. All right, let's get back into the show. So the private investigator started with what the facts were. When the girl is seen on CCTV footage, she is very visible. She has shoulder length, platinum blonde curly hair and a bright red puffer jacket. She was in and out of the hotel room all day and night. She made many trips to the lobby to chat with hotel workers and guests or to smoke outside. The camera caught her every time. Around 10.30 p.m., the victim left the hotel to have dinner with a friend, and that was confirmed by the friend. The cameras caught her coming back at midnight. She was in her room for a few more hours and then left to walk to a nearby gas station to buy a phone card so she could speak with her mother in the Ukraine. Now, the reason she was up at this hour was to wait to talk with her mother, as it was just the morning there. So it does seem like she's up really late, but the reason is she has to be up late to communicate with her family. Which makes sense. I mean, yeah, the time difference is big, so. Right. So the victim had gone up to the fourth floor at around 3.41 a.m. The camera shows her entering the elevator. A large black man gets on the elevator with her, and the two are seen talking. She used her keycard to enter her room 20 minutes later. She was never seen by the cameras again and was found at dawn just outside the Everglades, eight miles away. So this leaves two time gaps for Brennan to fill. The 20 minutes from the elevator to the hotel room, and the three hours from when she entered the hotel room, to when she was found. When asked about the 20 minutes between the elevator and swiping into the room, the victim said that she had no memory of the missing time. She remembered leaving the elevator and walking to her room. The surveillance cameras were checked and they were in perfect working order. They were all on a motion sensor rather than just being on all the time. So what Brennan did is he's actually going to go there and the police did it too. So this happened twice where they checked the motion sensor and even the slightest movement would cause the cameras to come on. So there was no problem with the working order of the motion sensors. And Brennan now had to think, how did this girl get outside without being seen leaving? She's on the fourth floor. So, logically, the only way to leave the fourth floor is by elevator or stairs, but she's not captured on either of those cameras. So, he was like, okay, maybe she left through the window, but she can't just climb out of the fourth floor window. Or even if someone attacked her, you can't just, there was no visible signs of someone being, her being thrown out of a fourth story window. You would definitely know that happened to somebody. Right. Um, also, I mean, she could have been lowered out of the window, but there was no ligature marks or like signs of ropes or anything. And he checked the bushes below the window 
and there was no disturbances to the bushes. So she didn't go out the window. It's also, he said, this seemed to be a crime of passion, convenience. It wasn't something that was planned. And to be able to like drop someone from a window that takes a lot of planning and usually sex crimes don't come with that type of planning. Yeah. Brennan's next theory was a disguise. Maybe she had been dressed up and was forced out or maybe she dressed up herself. So he watched all the footage over and over again, slowly checking off all the occupants of the 174 rooms. He claimed that it was physically impossible for anyone to have committed the crime except for the black man who got on the elevator with her. However, this didn't make any sense because she ID'd the assailants as two or three white men that she now claimed had Romanian accents, not Hispanic accents. So the same man was seen emerging from the elevator into the lobby less than two hours from when he entered the elevator with the victim at 5.28 a.m. He was carrying a, like a large carry-on size bag with him, and he returns less than an hour later and strolls back onto the elevator, this time without the suitcase. And Brennan was convinced that this was the man who had assaulted the victim, and he truly believed that the case would be solved if, if they could just find that man. But I think that that's, I don't know, when you look at the camera footage, you're like, no way. It couldn't have been because they were having a friendly conversation. And then she, there's 20 minutes missing, but she goes into her room. And then she said the attack happened in her room. And she described two to three white men. I mean, there's even a difference in the number of assailants. Right. But you also have to remember that she also already has contradicted her story twice already based on the accents true and that kind of happens a lot with victims when they try to go through it again they either remember new things or they remember things that really maybe weren't the case or you know it gets twisted i understand yeah especially you know she suffered a crazy attack right brennan had a sneaking suspicion that the answer to his biggest question was in that suitcase it was plausible. Um, I think, though, that the man was bringing his stuff to his car because because Brennan's saying that it's kind of weird that this man brings his suitcase to his car but goes back in. But I take several trips sometimes to my car to drop stuff off, go back to the room, make sure I didn't leave anything or get a second bag. You know what I mean? So the guy goes back and forth and leaves his bag in his car. I mean, yeah, I guess. It's it's just something that could happen. It's not irregular that he did that. But maybe there's more to it. Correct. But that's what the thought process that Brennan's having right now. So to check his theory, um, he is going to see if a woman the size of the victim could fit into the bag. And he is going to get a bag of the same size. And he's able to check... That the size of the bag he has and the size of the bag the guy has is the same because he compares them to the tiles on the floor that are seen in the video. That's kind of smart. Yeah. And the woman was able to fit inside. Brennan also noted that in the video, as the man was getting off the elevator, the bag caught as he was getting off. 
and he tugged the bag and it broke free. Like, you know, when you get off an elevator and if your bag's really heavy, it like catches on the grooves. Yeah. That's what happened. The moment was small, but if you were looking for it, you could see it. When Brennan attempted to carry out the same size bag with the weight as heavy as the victim, the same thing happened to him. The wheels caught. Now, at this point, the only thing Brennan knew about his number one suspect was that he appeared to be, based on his size relative to the elevator doors, about 6'4 and upwards of 300 pounds. He was also, as he believed, used to doing these kinds of things, based on his calm demeanor. Walking in and out of the hotel, acting like nothing was going on, it was clear that he had done this before. In Brennan's experience, that's... If you'd never raped and almost killed a woman before, you'd be panicking, freaking out. But this guy was calm, cool, collected the whole time. And If, if it, he's even the guy who did it. Right. And if he did put this woman in a, in a carry-on or a suitcase, I mean, you'd be panicking if she would scream or, or move while you're carrying the bag. So, you, like like you said, or like rolling the, ba- uh, the uh, suitcase, I can see what you're saying. Right. Like he would be nervous. He would be freaking out. Because what if someone notices that it's moving? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there's a lot of factors that go into that. So, yeah, of course. So although he didn't have his guy, he had an answer to the question his clients had. Brennan called for a meeting with the hotel in November of 2005. The owners were there, the insurance adjusters, and the lawyers. He showed everyone in the room the video of the man stepping off the elevator with the suitcase. She's in there, he said. And there was silence. And then everyone just laughed. First, they believed it was ridiculous that the victim could even fit into a suitcase because this is a small suitcase. It's a small carry-on. And secondly, they brought up the fact that the victim ID'd two or three white men. Brennan told them that he was convinced that It was this man, and he asked for more money and resources to try and find out who he is. And this is a win-win for you, he was telling the hotel. If this is the guy, then we can prove it, and the hotel employees aren't at fault, and the lawsuit would go away. And then we'd also be aiding in the solving of a horrific crime. And worst case scenario, I get to interview the man who last saw her before she was attacked. So... Seems like a win-win. Right. It's necessary for him to find this guy. The people in the meeting seemed unmoved, though. They didn't want to spend more money on this. But look at how cool this guy is, he told them, replaying the video. He just raped and beat a woman to death. He thinks he has. And it's not like he's all nervous and jittery. He's as cool as a cucumber. So tell me the kind of person who could do such a thing and be this nonchalant. This ain't the only time he's done this. Eventually, they chose to give Brennan the resources that he asked for. The records at the hotel were useless because it was an airport hotel, and there was a lot of turnover. No one remembered the 300-pound man with glasses, and there was no way to tell if he was a guest or a visitor. Brennan went through the photocopied license of the registered guests, but there were some missing, and the ones that he did have were extremely blurry. The video was the only thing that he had left. Brennan analyzed every frame that the suspect was caught on. On several occasions, he was seen with a smaller, very fit black man. 
The second man was seen wearing a shirt that had said the word Mercury on it. At another time, the smaller man was seen to have a badge ID of some sort. However, it was too small to work out. Brennan even called NASA to see if he could enhance the picture to make out what the badge said. However, they were unable to do so because of the camera that was used to capture the image. Those guys pull like calling out everything. Like he's trying. Pulling out all the stops. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant to say. So thank you. I got you. <laughs> While analyzing the footage even more, Brennan was able to see that the back of the smaller man's shirt had a word on it. The first letter was definitely a V, and the last letter was an O, but it was very difficult to make out what the script letters in between were. Finally, he came up with the word Verado. He had no clue what that meant, so he did what we all do, what I just did at the beginning of this episode. He Googled it. What came up was that Verado was the name of an outboard engine company. And this new engine was manufactured by Mercury Marine. So Verado's an outboard engine and Mercury Marine makes it. Which is very popular. Those engines are used on most boats. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And possibly, um, uh, what do you call those? Jet skis. Jet skis. Good. Good recovery. Yeah, I tried. <laughs> I was like literally making the like. He made the jet ski <laughs> motions and I wasn't going to help him. I was just going to let that happen for a while. <laughs> and this manufacturer just so happened to be present at a big boat show that was taking place in Miami in February. Oh, man. So it's all piecing together here. But before we get further into the story, let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor. All right, let's get back to the show. Brennan called the boat engine manufacturer and asked if their employees were put up in the airport regency. The company's head of security ensured him that they were not. Neither was the crew that set up and dismantled the company's booth. Brennan then asked the man, well then, who handed out the shirts? The head of security said he would find out and get back to him. It took two weeks, but the man did call back. Like, really, two weeks? Yeah, I mean, that's, Seriously? A little, that's a little insane. He told Brennan that the shirts had been given away at the boat show's food court. The private investigator now turned his attention to the company Centerplate, the organization that handles the concession for large events. This made things difficult because this company existed throughout the United States. The head of human resources at Centerplate told Brennan that he had hired 200 people for the big boat show and that they were from all over the country. So it's, got, it's just like this rabbit hole keeps getting deeper and deeper for Brennan. Brennan told the head of HR that the man they were looking for was a 300-pound African-American male who wore glasses. A week after doing some digging, the man got back to Brennan. He stated that people do remember the man he was talking about, However, no one could remember his name. They did know that the home base that he works at was Zephyr Field, home of the New Orleans Zephyrs, which is a minor league baseball team in the state. Now, this would be amazing news, except for the fact that Hurricane Katrina had just ravaged New Orleans. 
and its surrounding areas, including the town that the Zephyrs play in. And the entire area had been ordered to evacuate. So isn't that crazy? Yeah, I mean, you have to, like, think to yourself, like, when a major disaster happens, whether, like, for example, here, everything on hold. Everything is destroyed. Investigations. Yeah. And one day we would really like to do an episode on not just what happened with Hurricane Katrina, but the crime that was occurring in the chaos that, that the city and the state was going through. Yeah, that would be really cool. Not to mention I am a um, huge Saints fan. Huge Saints fan. So, yeah, we should do that. It was a long shot, but Brennan reached out to a friend that he had on the force in New Orleans. He asked the man if he could go to the field and see if anyone knew who he was looking for. Zephyr Fields was actually being prepared for the upcoming season, despite the damage that was done by the storm. When the police officer asked if they knew the man's name, the workers told him that they did. His name was Mike Jones. And Brennan was stuck again. Mike Jones is probably one of the most common names that somebody could have. That's true. It's like John Smith. It's true. It's weird, right? Yeah. So Brennan checked back with the hotel, and there was that name again, Mike Jones. Jones had checked into the hotel on Valentine's Day, February 14th, and checked out on February 22nd, the day after the attack. The full name on the credit card was Michael Lee Jones. The card had been canceled, and the address that was given was one that Jones had left years prior to the check-in date. The phone number left was for center plate. This guy clearly knew what he was doing. And that's really scary. It was like he planned an attack to happen. Yeah. So even though it seems like this couldn't be planned, so far it's looking like it was. It was planned. Yeah. So Brennan put it all together. This man planned the attack. Maybe not the exact victim, but the attack itself. Although Jones no longer worked for Center Plate, he had for a long time. This was the perfect job for a serial rapist who could move on from town to town. It's almost like a traveling circus. Yeah, pretty much. Brennan also knew that this was not something that someone just stops doing. And usually, perpetrators got familiar with a routine. So Brennan looked up other food service companies in the country. This guy is like, he's good. If anything ever happens, hire this Brennan guy. He's worth it. He's worth it. I meant like you hire him if anything happens to me. Oh, well, nothing's going to happen to you, so I don't have to worry. Well, I've prepared that so it won't. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay. Brennan called the human resource departments of all of those places, and he struck out each time. Michael Lee Jones had never worked for them. The last food services company was one that was based in Tampa. Brennan decided to physically go to the company because he was going to be in the area for another job that he was working. When he went to the headquarters, he talked his way into the COO's office. It was here that he asked the man if he ever employed a man named Michael Lee Jones. And then he physically described what the man looked like. 
The executive didn't even call his human resources department. He told Brennan that he would need a subpoena if he wanted the information. And this was odd. Every other place just checked and said, nope, not here, no Mike Jones. And he knew that he had struck a nerve. But this denial of access got Brennan mad. He asked the COO if he really wanted a rapist working for him. The response that was given back to him was get a subpoena. Brennan called Foote and told him everything that had gone on at their meeting. And he asked Foote if he could fax over a subpoena. And because Brennan was helping Foote so much with this investigation, Foote got on that subpoena immediately. And within an hour, the fax came through as a smiling Brennan looked at the flustered executive. It turned out that the company did employ a man named Michael Lee Jones, and he was currently working in Frederick, Maryland. That's insane. Isn't that crazy? Because, you know, you don't want to be like, it's almost like housing a fugitive. Well, I think it also, it's going to reflect poorly on the company for not, I don't know, if if the guy has no priors and they did the background check, they would have no way of knowing. So you're right. I don't know why they wouldn't just say something. Yeah, just do it. Like, I mean, I don't understand why you're playing hardball. No. And, that, and that's what a lot of people do, especially like CFOs, COOs. They all do this. Like, they all, like, you know, it's depicted in movies, shows. It's happened in real life. Like You know what? It's also probably what they've been told to do by their legal team. Probably. And if that's the protocol, they really can't break but it. If, right. But you have to think about it. If, if it doesn't um, affect them, if it doesn't put them in, a, in some sort of bind, then what does it matter? If it's helping legal in an investigation, it's crazy. These, legal teams for these huge organizations always want to do things like this they're just trying to protect themselves it's true i mean don't get me wrong yes it it does help them protect themselves Mm -hmm. but at the same time my whole thing my opinion is if you have nothing to hide and it doesn't somehow affect you and and your bottom line Mm -hmm. then you do it well it's actually funny that you bring that up because isn't that essentially what this hotel is doing by hiring brennan period protecting themselves luckily brennan's this like straight shooter but the hotel's trying to do the same thing the COO is trying to do. True, but the difference is, is they're hiring Brennan, knowing willingly knowing that if the evidence benefits them or hurts them, he's still going to use it. Correct. So that's the difference. Yeah. Whereas the COO is just hiding behind a legal team and closed doors. Correct. Little different, but yet yes, they are helping. Everyone's trying to help themselves. Right. So Detective Foot is going to have to go to Maryland. To question Jones. And when Detective Foote arrives, he is freezing. Obviously, a guy from Florida isn't used to Maryland in early spring, even though it would be a dream for us. Totally. The man was behind the barbecue counter when he arrived at Harry Grove Stadium. Jones knew that Foote and another detective were coming to talk to him about an incident that had taken place in Miami. When they questioned him over the phone, Jones seemed very calm and forthcoming about the time that he had spent in Miami. In fact, Jones even gave foot directions to the minor league ballpark. So this guy is just like not even worried about this interview with detectives. It's pretty uh, disturbing. Well, he also thinks that he has everything most likely taken care of. of. 
It was clear that Jones was very well liked by all of those around him. He was in charge of the operation behind the food counter, and all of his employees laughed with him and respected him. Foote asked him if he was able to talk at a nearby picnic area. Jones was a huge man. He was tall, wide, and very powerful. Although he was intimidating, Foote described him as being gentle and passive. Foote asked him if he had hooked up with any women while he was in Miami. He said yes, that he did, once. He then added that he only had sex with white women. Foote asked him if he had sex with anyone at the airport, and Jones replied that he had not. He said that the woman that he had hooked up with had been at the boat show and that they had had sex elsewhere, not in the hotel. When he asked if she was blonde, he said no. Foote then asked if she had a foreign accent, and Jones said yes, he believed it was German. Foote then cut to the chase. He was freezing, and he was starting to think that he was wasting his time. He said, look, I've got a girl who was raped that week. Did you have anything to do with it? No, of course not, Jones said. He was shocked by the question. No way. You didn't beat the shit out of a girl and leave her dead in a field to die? Uh, no, Jones replied. That's a, that's a question. Yeah. That's a, that's a question I hope a detective never, never asks. Yeah. (laughs) Foote then asked for a DNA specimen and Jones agreed. So Foote swabs the man's mouth and then leaves. And as he's leaving, he's like super pissed because this guy is being completely honest. He's really nice. Gave him, literally gave him directions to him. It's not like he's trying to stay hidden. And he voluntarily gave a DNA sample. So guilty men kind of don't act that way. Unless they're super confident. That's true. But this man left. So if this is the guy that did this, he knows that he left semen in the victim. Right. So it is kind of a very confident thing to do. So it's looking a foot like this guy. This is not his guy. And Brennan's wrong. It's not him. Foot kept telling Brennan who also traveled to Maryland for the conversation. And Brennan is going to speak with Jones um, three times over a three-day period. And in those three interviews over three days, Jones never broke and he denied hurting anybody. And Foote was annoyed and Brennan was still convinced. Like, Brennan still thought that it was Jones. And months are going to pass and the DNA results come back. You were right, Foote said. Jones's DNA is a match. Isn't that crazy? See, this is this was my thing real quickly. I had a feeling the moment that that the swab that they swabbed for DNA, he said to himself, if I deny right now, they're going to know it's me. If I Correct. give them my DNA now, they're going to have to go back and test that. That gives me time to either leave or they may not even or, test it. Or they might not test it because I'm being so upfront. Correct. It's it's a confidence yeah. thing. All right. So before we get a little bit further into this investigation and this positive DNA match, let's take a break to hear from our third and final sponsor. Okay. Now let's get back to the show. Brennan is going to fly up to Maryland to meet Foot 
who had just arrested Michael Lee Jones. Jones was charged with a variety of felonies that included rape, kidnapping, and aggravated assault. Jones kept his cool the whole time he was in custody. He maintained that he had never hurt a woman and that he did not get a kick out of doing so. Jones, however, could not deny the fact that his DNA was found inside of the victim. He said that he did have sex with that girl. He said that she was a prostitute that prompted him for sex in the elevator. And they had quickly had sex and the woman left his room. And she was really drunk, but she was in good shape. So now that's a problem too, because that his story seems to account for those missing 20 minutes. Yeah, it does. It actually does. So it's not good. Detectives showed Jones a picture of the woman's face and he protested. I did not hurt that girl. He was not yelling, rather whining to detectives. I am not violent. I never hit a woman in my whole life. I'm not going to hurt her. When asked why he rolled the suitcase out of the hotel a day before he was leaving, Jones said he forgot what day he was leaving the hotel. And when Brennan asked him what was in the suitcase, Jones said that it was his clothes, books, and video games. The private detective mentioned the suitcase catching, and Jones said that it was because he had a lot of books in there. He was an avid reader. When Brennan asked him what books he read, Jones couldn't name a single title. I mean, at least have a have a title ready. I mean, know? dude, you could even say Moby Dick, you know. Make it up. You know, I mean, Harry Potter. Harry I mean, Potter. Anything. Although, although things were fishy with Jones's story, things were in his favor so far. He had been compliant and mildly mannered. He volunteered his DNA and said that he paid the victim for sex, which would, in court, explain the DNA. Jones also had been arrested previously for soliciting a prostitute, and in this case, that arrest would work in his favor. Foote was also working against the fact that the victim ID'd two to three white men with accents. That's a crazy different ID. When she was shown Jones's photo in a photo lineup, she did pick him. However, this was tainted because she was shown the picture of Jones before she ID'd him in a lineup. So, like, the police kind of dropped the ball with that one. Yeah. Miami prosecutors did not want to take this to trial. So they made a deal with Jones. He had to return to Miami and plead guilty to sexual assault. He was only sentenced to two years in prison for what he did, for almost killing this girl. Well, that was the deal, though, right? That was the deal that he made. Part of the made. plea bargain? Correct, because they knew they couldn't put the victim on the stand because she was inconsistent with her IDs, and the IDs that she did do were two to three white men. So it's kind of hard to then now convict one black man. Right. You know um, what I'm saying? Yeah. So Brennan was not happy with this. His instincts were telling him that this was not a one-off thing. Jones was a serial rapist and possibly a murderer. He insisted that his DNA, now that he was convicted, should be run through CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. 
Miami-Dade police agreed and entered Jones's DNA into CODIS in late 2006. This process takes several months, as the FBI likes to double-check any matches that are found. Once it went through the system, three hits came up. Three. One case was from Colorado Springs Sex Crimes Unit. A blonde-haired, blue-eyed victim had been picked up in the early morning of December 1st, 2005, by a stranger. He was a very large African-American male who wore glasses. He offered her a ride as she was walking home. He managed to talk his way into her apartment. He raped her, holding her mouth tightly shut. For two years, it had remained unsolved. It was an exact match for Jones. The other two hits came from New Orleans. The first was also a blonde victim who had been out drinking in the French Quarter on May 5, 2003. In her statement, she said that she was very intoxicated. She was looking for a cab to take her back to her hotel when a very large black man with glasses pulled his car over and offered her a ride. She agreed. She said he pulled over to a weedy lot and raped her. He held his hand over her face as she attacked him. He held his hand over her face as he attacked her. She said that as his hand was over her face, she bit him so hard that she had pieces of his skin in her teeth afterwards. When he finished, he drove off and left her lying in the lot. She reported the rape to police, who collected both semen samples from her as well as blood samples from inside of her mouth. Both match Jones. The story from the third victim is very similar to the two before her. She was looking for a cab to take her home on the 3800 block of Tulane Avenue. He then raped her at knife point at an unknown location again leaving the victim lying on the ground. Based on his work schedule, Jones could be placed in both Colorado Springs and New Orleans. As his sentence in Florida was nearing its end, his trial in Colorado Springs had begun. Unfortunately, the victim from Colorado Springs had died due to unrelated incidents, so she could not be put on the stand. Instead, the prosecutor from Colorado Springs chose to put the victims from Miami and New Orleans on the stand. He did this and was allowed to do this not only because their DNA matched, but because their stories were similar and it would create a common plan or scheme showing that there was an MO to this man's attack. It's actually funny because he even said himself that he likes white women and every victim was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman. Right. So it's like... He set it up, too, a little bit there. Absolutely. The victim from New Orleans was very effective. She was very remorseful regarding her decision that night. Her memory was clear and her story was horrifying. It was clear that she was still affected by the events of that night. On the other hand, the Miami victim was as bad on the stand as the Miami prosecutors feared that she would be. Her story changed several times, and her broken English made it very hard for the jury to understand. Jones had pleaded not guilty to the case in Colorado Springs. 
His defense team was arguing that the sex in Colorado Springs was also consensual and that the woman who was claiming rape was also a prostitute. However, this defense fell short as there was zero evidence that any of the three women were prostitutes. And then, of course, there was the evidence of the DNA. Michael Lee Jones was sentenced to 24 years to life for one count of sexual assault with force and 12 years to life for the second count of felonious sexual contact. He is currently 47 years old and will not be eligible for his first parole hearing until 2032. The victim in Miami won $300,000 from the hotel and security company. And that basically only paid for her medical um, bills that she had to pay. Which is insane. Yeah. In 2015, Jones eventually pleaded guilty to the charges of rape, kidnapping, and aggravated assault in the two cases from New Orleans. And for that, he was sentenced to an additional 45 years in prison. The so-called suitcase rapist will never be able to hurt another woman again. That's fantastic. I mean, it was a, it's a good ending that justice was served at the end of this case. Totally. <clears throat> Absolutely. What I think is a really good takeaway, there's a few good takeaways from this case. The first is that, unfortunately, our police departments are extremely overwhelmed when it comes to investigating these crimes. So luckily there was a a competent private investigator who was stopping at nothing to solve this crime, and that made things go well. Not only that, but he had experience because he was a federal agent. He was a detective. That obviously made him, like, he had experience dealing with things of this nature. Correct. So kind of plays to him what you just said it does and there's actually a reason why i chose the order of the cases that we're covering because in two weeks i want to cover a it's a very controversial case but a misidentification can happen and this case really proves that where here's a victim who was in every sense of the word a victim She was attacked. She was brutalized. She was raped. She was left for dead. But because of the head injuries that she sustained, which were horrific, um, brain rattling, her eye socket was broken, the head injuries caused her to do a false ID. And this isn't just like... (laughs) I mean, that's a crazy false ID to go from a a large black man, one guy, to two to three white men with changing types of accents. Like, I get that she didn't understand, like, the different accents because she also doesn't speak English well. So the accent thing, let's put aside. But two to three white men versus a one black man who actually did it, that's a crazy false identification, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it just goes to the whole thing where she sustained head in, uh, head trauma. And you also have to think, I mean, we're probably think, uh, dealing with concussions, blackouts. Right. So, like, you know, things can happen. I mean, speaking of concussions, I've had many. I mean, there's times where, um, you know, I sustained concussions from playing sports. 
and there was one or two times where I couldn't remember what happened before I knocked out. So like it, I, I guess it can happen, but like, but in this case, we're we're pretty much saying like, you know, we're dealing with originally three three white men, one black man. It's just a very like hard thing to get twisted, but yet it happens. So right, it just sucks because there are people out there that could be saying like, oh well, what if it's not? I mean, if we didn't have the DNA, we would be having the conversation. Is he being falsely accused. accused right and that happens more than everyone thinks but in this case because we have dna evidence right we could prove that it was him because if we didn't have a dna evidence i would be like no way they are just trying to railroad this guy yeah i would just especially say especially uh, because of his behavior right, and his exactly. demeanor well exactly and that's probably what that's he was so hoping scary. for right but he was banking on that though i think so i think he was too so because I think, I mean, it's it's hard, but that's also the importance of the CODIS system is to have people's DNA in the system so we can cross-check it with victims. But if somebody hasn't committed a crime, then we're shit out of luck. Right, exactly. So it's it's this is an interesting case because it brings up so many factors. You know what I mean? Like, it's not an unsolved case, but it, it really helps us. And I think that... When we cover future cases, it's going to be our basis of saying, remember the hotel case yeah. with the misidentification. It happens. And it's prevalent, like, even today. So, like, even though, like you know, if something happened in 2005 or 1999 or whatever, it's still relevant. People sometimes get accused of it and they go to jail. They didn't do anything. Right. And then you have the the flip side. And I guess this really boils down to... Eyewitness testimony, like we've mentioned a million times, sometimes is just not good. It's so unreliable. It's just, it's crap. It's really the worst kind of evidence is usually what um, detectives say. Yeah. And it changes multiple times. I mean, just the victim alone. And once again, I'm not trying to blame the victim here. Just no, it's saying, not blaming the victim. It's you know, a head it's, trauma. It's a head trauma. And you're, you know, like I said, her story changed, what, two times? Correct. You know, and actually three times if you count the accents. So, yeah. you know. Well, it's it's just a really, really good case. And hats off to Detective Brennan for really doing such a great job and not stopping, even yeah. though people kind of didn't believe him or his instincts there on that one. Definitely. Okay, so what we want to do now are... Um, so if you donate to us on Patreon at a certain tier, a certain level, you get to have... a a shout out like a customized shout out so we have two people who have requested shout outs and the first comes from our number one fans from ipswich massachusetts clint and denise um we're so happy that you guys love us and thank you so much for listening and donating to us yes thank we you. love you and then the other one is from Jisoo Kim, who has always been a huge supporter of us on whether it's listening to the podcast or on Twitter. And she wants to know if we could share the story about how we met each other. Okay, so hold on really quickly. Are we giving the <laughs> short version? I mean, the good version, but the short version or the really long version? I mean, it's not really long, but I'll, we'll give the whole thing. Let's, let's do it. Okay. You want to start? Uh, okay, I'll start. Yeah. So I went to college in northern New Jersey, really close to the New York state border. And 
I lived at college. And at this time, Johnny was working construction in the city. And he lived in, I don't, I wouldn't say upstate, Orange County, New York. We'll say Hudson Valley. Yeah, lower he, Hudson Valley. He calls it upstate New York because he's from the city, but it's not. It's not. So, to a yeah. city person, it to is. To a city person, yes. it would be. Um, but yeah, lower Hudson Valley. Right. So we were always i guess we were on the same kind of path because when he would get home from the city he'd have to kind of dip into new jersey to get back into hudson valley and i would always i had a six o'clock class and this class was i think it was a it was a law and government class and it was three hours long from six to nine at night and it was on a tuesday and like tuesday and Thursday nights are the, t- the nights you go out at college. So I always needed coffee to get me through the class so I could actually, like, get my ass out, like, afterwards. Because I'm, like, I'm really a grandma. At- <laughs> I hate, like, going out too late. So I would stop and get coffee at the Quick Check on Route 17 by, like, where everything is. So I kept seeing Johnny at Quick Check. Yes, and I was always there around that time because I actually worked with my father for the same company. So we would drive in together, and we would he would love to go home that way through Jersey. He always used to tell me it's just the fastest route. So right before the New York border, there's a quick check there, which if you don't know what quick check is, it's just a uh, coffee place, kind of like a convenience store, like a 7-Eleven type thing. But and, this was uh, a big one, like brand new. So it yeah, was it was good. brand new. Very, you know, it was big. It had a lot to offer there. So we would stop there, especially because we were probably really thirsty or hungry. So we'd stop there, and uh, I met I met Kay there. You know, we were online, and uh, she was buying something, and I was buying something, and uh, I I right away I was kind of vibing. You know, I was like, this girl is really pretty. I'd like to talk to her. Um, and while I That's was so sweet. yes, while I was uh, trying to get the courage to do this, of course I had my father slapping me in the back of my neck. <laughs> yeah, at first Johnny and his father look nothing alike, so I thought. First of all, I always saw these two guys at Quick Check, so I'm I'm thinking like, do they work here? Like, are they? They were always in construction stuff, so I'm like, are they doing construction at Quick Check? Like, I think we ran into each other like five times before five we started times. talking. Yeah. And his dad would, like, be making fun of him, like, oh, this guy's got to shave. Don't you think he has to shave? And I'd be like, um, no, I think it's okay. Typical. And I thought that was, it was your boss. Yeah. Typical dad. Um, (laughs) You know, and uh, it's actually funny because, like, now that I think back to it, my dad was trying to, like, almost, like, be my wingman. And as far as trying to help me, like, seal the deal, you know. But But we were too nervous to talk to each other. Yeah, exactly. And actually, so what, so to kind of speed up a little bit well wait first oh. before we get to that point i remember thinking oh my god like this guy you won't just talk to me like i like him i think he's really cute i wish he would just come up and talk to me and i remember one point i got into my car and johnny's standing outside of the quick check and i lingered like i did not have to linger that long and i'm like he just gotta come up to my window and he didn't so then I'm driving away and I'm thinking it's it's the most bizarrest thing and don't think I'm a psycho, <laughs> but it sounds like it when I say it. But I remember thinking I'm going to marry this guy if he would just talk to me. Isn't that weird? 
I always say that. <laughs> I don't think it's weird. I mean, some, I knew you it. Just like know. I Sometimes knew. You just know. Yeah. You just know. I think um, what for, what it was for me was I just I was always very shy, and even though I was very outgoing and talkative, I am shy to a certain point, mm-hmm. um, especially with women. Like my whole life, I was always very shy. But um, what happened was my friend was kind of looking for a job at the time, and I said, "Hey, I know these people, quick check," because we were there all the time, and it was just mm-hmm. something in the meantime, you know, until he got on his feet, and um, I. We pull into the quick check, and I see her there, and I'm I'm bugging out. I'm telling my friend, I'm like, hey, listen, man, that's the girl. That's the girl. So he's like, all right, you know, just reverse park here and go talk to her. Um, and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if I ever said this to Kay, but I got a, I just bought a brand new Camaro, fully loaded Camaro. I reversed into someone's car, um, you know, because <laughs> I was so nervous. It didn't do any damage to my car or that person's car. Uh, and I was like, oh, my God, this is like, okay, that's like this is the most luckiest thing in the world to happen. Okay, I run out, I see her, and then I ask her to go on a date with me. Yeah, it was nice. It, was, it wasn't it was too awkward of a conversation. Yeah. And then, But it was like by chance because it was a Saturday. I was on my way to the mall, and I just stopped to get coffee first. Yep. So that was pretty crazy. And put it this way, my friend was like making uh, rude words to me if I didn't go and ask her. Yeah. You know, like, it was, come on, man. You know, you're a, you know, know this it. and that. And I'm like, all right, all right, all right, all right. And then I finally did it. That's so funny. He's like, I forgot come on, that come on, Brian you do was it. there. You got to do it. You know, he was like kind of pressuring me, like peer pressure, you know? Yeah. But I never saw him. I never saw Brian. I think he Brian hid, he was hid just, in, the, in the back. Yeah, like, like Brian in was the like lanes. on the DL. Like, yeah. he was just like hiding. <laughs> so then we finally go for this first date, and I'm like so excited. I was nervous. I'm like, oh my God, this is too good to be true. He's probably going to just cancel, but we, I'm getting ready for this date and my roommates in college, I lived with three other girls. They called Johnny like the quick check guy. So I'm like, I'm going on a date with the quick check guy. And my one roommate who's in our wedding party now, Alicia, she was like, no, I don't know if I like this. You don't know who this dude is. Like you just randomly met him. We only know his first and last name. It could be fake. Um, because we looked, you didn't have like a big like Facebook, like you weren't on social media, so it was a little shady at first. I mean, I was on social media, but like, I but just, not crazy. No, I you know I never really posted anything. It could to have this been day. a serial killer profile. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's, you're not a big poster. I'm not a po- big poster. Me no. either. I'm and not. I don't even like to like snoop on people and like look either. I'm not that type. I am the best people finder just so well, you know that's that's great if you ever need my services i'm available <laughs> but yeah i never did that stuff so i would just pretty much make an account just to be like hey i have this just yes. like everybody else and then um so alicia was flipping out and she said you got to get his license plate number and text it to me so i'm like okay and i go out and he's got a brand new car so he only has the temp like the temporary sticker, piece of yeah. paper like it's not even a license plate <laughs> So I said to her, I'm like, well, he only has a temp. And she just texted me back like, see you never. Like, you're going to die. Oh, fun. fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was, it was a really great date. And we, my God, we like, we're talking in the restaurant until it shut down. And then we just drove around and talked to each yeah. other. Yeah. They had to kick us out. They did. <coughs> and that's, that's how we met. That was our date. That was our first date. It was great. I know. So it's fate that we're together and starting a podcast. Yeah. So thank you, Quick Check, for that. So that's that. our origin story. That is our origin story. 
Well, um, again, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on any of the platforms that you listen to us on. And if you're feeling really generous, you can donate to us on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash couple. We are starting this month our bonus episode features. So if you're donating $1 to $2, you get one bonus episode a month, which will be coming out next weekend. And if you are donating more than that, like $5 and upwards, you get a second bonus episode. So for a month. So we're, we're starting that this month and we're really excited about it. We are. So we hope you enjoy. All right, guys. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye.